chasing seas. I've been high up off my ass. Magic beans, magic beans, flying solo. Mr. Dolo, what you mean? What you mean? Grab control and major time. Do you read? Do you read? Smoking on gas, got me slumped. Chasing seas, chasing seas. I've been high up off my ass. What's up, Bizarros? It's Gaz Morgan here for, man, Season 3, Episode 1. I hope everyone had a great holiday. Yeah, so it's kind of crazy. This is the first time I'm talking to everyone now since, uh, uh, I guess just before Christmas. So uh, thank you for your patience. If you're listening, especially if you're a repeat listener, thanks for coming back and sticking it out and... It's been kind of crazy. Had some little health scares there, but everything is good. I'm 100%, and uh, hopefully we can get back on schedule and things can get back to normal. So, how are all you? Hope everything's going out there. It looks like things are starting to slowly kind of get a little better with the COVID thing, and uh, hope maybe you guys are getting out there, being safe, but getting out there. But uh, we got some... Uh, crazy bizarro files to get through you know i gotta look through there and check them out and uh i have quite a bit so i'll try not to make a crazy long show but uh there's no shortness of weird people may not be going out as they used to but they're still being hella weird so uh let me get myself together and grab things and then let's get into it yay so all right i got myself together now so let's uh let's jump right into it this is from over at Phantom and Monsters. Late night angry roar terrorizes Indiana County, Pennsylvania family. The late night angry roar and damaged screen door generated by a cryptid beast disturbs a royal family. A royal family. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it was the royal family. Let's make that a rural family in Indiana County, Pennsylvania. Without saying they knew what it was. The following account was in response to an earlier post. And these, uh... These are uh, from Tuesday, April 6th, so pretty recent as to when I'm actually recording here. But the incident occurred during the summer of 1983, so we're going back a little bit. Uh, these were uh, files pulled from Phantom and Monsters that had never been published before. But as I was about to begin my senior year in high school, my family lived in rural Pennsylvania in northern Indiana County. Our farmhouse was built in the mid-1800s. In the early 1900s, an addition was added to the back that more than doubled the size of the original house. The original house was a four-square house, so-called for the four-square rooms, two on the first floor and two on the second floor, with a staircase in the back. The house as a whole was sturdy, albeit a bit cranky. Every night in the summer, I fell asleep listening to the pops, cracks, creaking, and groans as the house cooled off in the night air. The house was built on high ground, next to the mouth of an ancient ravine that ran for over a mile, deeper and darker and rookier as it went down, down to the north branch of the Little Mahoning Creek. The ravine was heavily wooded at the beginning, then the trees sparsened to a few old ones tenaciously rooted into the eroded rocks and glacial till. It was dark and cool and damp down there, even on the hottest summer day, and I spent many summer days down in those woods. I knew the plants, the trees, the birds, and the deer. I heard much I couldn't I heard much I couldn't see, like the rabbits running through the brush and the squirrels high up scolding me as I walked. I could sense the ones that hid and made no noise. The bobcats lurking and the nocturnal critters in peeking at my back as I passed their burrows. 
Sometimes sudden waves of total silence would descend on the woods. The air would be still. The birds would silence themselves. I taught myself to stop at these moments and to observe. I knew it wasn't me that made the animals go silent, so I figured something, a bobcat perhaps, was close by. I never saw what it was that caused the silences, but I loved to imagine myself as a skilled tracker. Nothing of the sort, of course, but I will claim to know those woods. I also had a bosom friend and companion as, the roamed, as I roamed the woods and ravines around my house, a big male German shepherd named Chap. Chap loved to run and roam and chase groundhogs. We prowled along through the woods for years. This particular night, I awoke suddenly, very awake and alert. The wind was blowing against the open window. Our room had the crank-out windows that were popular in the 70s when the house had been remodeled. The bottom of the window tilted out and the rain ran off. There was a low rumble off in the distance, the thunder of a summer storm blowing in the west. I was laying on my belly, my face on its left side on my pillow, and my arms around and under my pillow. I listened to the rain. It was not unusual for me to wake up in the middle of the night. It's been a regular occurrence in my life since I was very young. By that point, at 17 years old, I was used, used to my 3 a.m. ritual, though still very irritated by it. Across the room, I could hear my brother breathing. I could hear our dog lying on the foot of my brother's bed, sniffing at the rainy night air blowing in the wind. Across the hall from our room, I could hear my dad's low, steady, rumbling snore. Then I heard something that made my eyes fly open in the pitch-black room. From down in the ravine, off in the distance, I heard an animal call unlike any I had ever heard. It was a roar, an angry roar. To the best of my knowledge, the apex predator in those woods was a, the bobcat. This was too deep, too throaty for a bobcat. Then I heard it again, surprisingly closer, a lot closer. I listened for my brother's breathing. Silence. He was awake. What was that? I loudly whispered. I don't know, he whispered back. There was obvious concern in his voice. Then we heard it again. It had to be no more than 75 feet from the house, down at the corner of the yard where the trail led into the woods and down to the ravine. First of all, it was no damn bobcat. It was not a dog, not a coyote. It was most definitely not a man. Next to my bed was a softball bat. I still have it, as a matter of fact. That night, all I wanted in the world was to slide my hand out from under my pillowed head, reach down and grab that ball bat. I couldn't move. Everyone in the house seemed paralyzed. I kept expecting to hear my dad throw his bedroom door open, but he never made a sound. Then two things happened in rapid succession. There was a tremendous crash, like something or someone had ran headlong into the house. Then there was another roaring, screaming howl, this time right next to the house. It was an angry, roaring shout so loud that I felt like it was next to my face. I had never in all my life heard an animal make a noise that loud. It was like a V8 engine with straight pipes was running wide open throttle. At the same time, there was a throbbing, a low-frequency growl that seemed to make the house vibrate. All I could do was close my eyes and try to scream, but nothing came out. I must have passed out. The next thing I know, it was morning. The sun was shining, the house was still there. I slept in which was very unusual in my family. I went downstairs. My dad and brother had already left for the day. 
My mom stood at the sink washing dishes. I looked at my mom wide-eyed. Surely she had heard what happened. She met my eyes and pointed to the back porch of her house, a small side room that housed a washing machine, dryer, and coat closet. I walked to the back porch to see that the door that had led to the outside had been ripped from its hinges and lay flat on the floor of the porch. In the coat closet, with his nose pressed as far back as it could go, laying in a puddle of his own urine, was Chap. He lay there whimpering for two days before he finally came out. I was given the task to fix the door. When it was up and repaired, I went to my mom and basically asked, Are we going to pretend that nothing happened last night? My mom sighed with obvious exasperation and said something along the lines of, Well, what would you like to know? You know what that was. Your dad knows. I know. We all know. Not much to talk about other than how scary it was. And frankly, I don't need to talk about that, thank you. And for my family, that was pretty much the end of it. I brought it up once not long ago. My dad shrugged. Eh, I know as much now as I did that night. Me? I drive by there on occasion. When I'm in the area, I stop on the old country road and listen a while. I listen to the wind and the birds. I listen a while. And then I drive on. That was by F.P. So, uh, also coming from Phantom and Monsters... Flying tentacled humanoid observed in Navajo Nation, Arizona. Two Navajo sisters in rural Arizona both observed the flying humanoid near their home. The being had tentacles and flew through the air like it was moving in water. The following account was recently posted on a social thread. My sister and I saw the same humanoid a few months apart. First sighting, July 2019. I was on the phone with my boyfriend in rural Arizona in the Navajo Nation. I was sitting in my truck at the time, parked, facing my house to the east. With him and I, we would be on the phone until one of the others slept. Now this night, it was him, and it was around 10 p.m., and I tried multiple times to wake my boyfriend up or to see if he was asleep. I hung up. After the call ended, I had this feeling like I was going to see something scary, and I tried to shake it off. I looked behind me to the west, and towards the northwest is a lot with a giant street light in the middle of the property. In the area between the lot and my house is a ditch, with some more space filling with that in the middle. But from the darkness, I saw this being come from the ditch, and in contrast with the bright background of the lot, it floated and glided above the ground, it seemed. The movements it made were really smooth and didn't have any motor movement, it wasn't like a normal thing. I was looking at it astonished. I was seeing it because its arms weren't like normal arms. They were fluid and almost were like tentacles. But it looked like water, and it's the tentacle arms moved with like a wave. The movement, it glided. It was very fast as well. I was super scared, never experienced anything like it. I called it the fluid man to my family. I still see it when I think about it. The second sighting, my sister in October 2019, around 10 p.m., on a Friday night, my sister went outside to get some air since the wood stove can get a little hot when it's filled with wood and coal. She went outside and then opened the door fast to tell me to come. I was sitting at the table across the living room and in the kitchen. When I ran over, she said the thing was gone, and just like that, 
she saw something rise up from the ground like a zombie above the ground, 20, 30 feet in the air. She made the movement of it rising from the ground in upward motion, very exaggerated, which made it seem creepier. It was in the same area as last time, since if you go out my front door, it's also looking west. She said it started flying after two people walking west on the road, going the same direction. My sister's a very hard-headed, stubborn person who isn't scared of anything. She's super courageous and will do anything to keep us safe. She never shows any emotion and keeps strong front like my dad. Her and I have a special relationship, so I've seen the real her more than anyone, and she's my best friend. However, I've never seen her that scared and alarmed in my life. It scared me too, because it's the same thing I rarely ever see. Both experiences were scary, and it was weird they happened within months. I always hope that I never see it again. My sister always brings it up now and then, when it's late at night and we're alone, of course. That was also Phantom and Monsters. That's by N on there. And again, these are, uh, these are all unpublished ones that were just recently put up on Phantom and Monsters. And I think I have another one here. All right, so this last one from Phantoms and Monsters is, uh, let's see, Real Bizarre Encounters, Primate-Like Reptilian, Morphing Deer Man, and Small Skunk Ape. Three different encounters with humanoid upright cryptids in Arizona, Florida, and Delaware. A primate-like reptilian, a morphing deer man, and a small skunk ape. These are three never-published encounter accounts from his old database. So, about seven years ago in Sierra Vista, a little city in Arizona, about 15 minutes from the Mexican border, misfortune had hit hard and I had been homeless for about six months at that point. So the usual schedule for me was to be awake until sunrise. The nights were cold and staying awake, moving, kept me warm. The first rays of sunlight were so warm that I was able to sleep. I would only sleep for a little bit before I was backed up and hitting a local charity for lunch. Catnap through dinner, wake back up as the sun goes down and wander through the desert to stay warm till sunrise. I run you through my schedule so that you'll know that this happened during my normal operating hours, while I was fully awake. It's not possible that I, it was a dream, and not likely to be from my imagination. So I had two routes. During the day, I would be in town, so I would be unarmed. But I had a straight-edge sword, well, I didn't see that coming, back in my burrow that I had bought when I had a job. Well, yeah, you're glad that you're, you know, buying the right things. Had a job, a car, and a house. During the night, I wandered the desert and would often be exploring far enough out that I would no longer even see the lights in town. I would wear my, short, my sword sheathed on my back, as you would, a just-in-case measure, and I'd really only ever used it to carve up yucca stalks for the roof of my burrow. Where is he living? Is it really in a burrow? Okay, setup complete. Here's what I saw. I'm walking along, following the edge of a small wash, twirling a stick I found. I'd walked for about an hour to get there, so I was probably a good five or so miles from any human on the planet. I hear a thump-thump from up ahead, but there's some scruffy bushes so I can't see anything. Not wanting to sneak up on something dangerous like a mother javelina or bear. The hell is a javelina? Now I gotta look that up. I take my stick and smack the nearest tree a couple times. 
Thumping stops, and about 30 feet ahead of me, I see a head poke up from behind a bush. A head I've seen before, kinda. It has big eyes and tufty bits on it, and was basically set up like any other primate face, but it looked almost reptilian. So I did what any normal person would do, and grabbed my sword handle and yanked it. I, I, I can't even. Well, it doesn't really work like that. I yanked it forward and accidentally broke the strap that kept the sheath on my back. Quality. So here I am brandishing a sheathed sword at a lizard monkey, five miles from nowhere, and it stands up to full height of four feet and bolts itself away from me. With this ostrich person gait that was more awkward to watch than it was scary, I went back to my burrow, but was always on the lookout for that thing. And that's by F. With his cheap-ass scabbard sword bullshit. Alright, next one. When I was 13, my friend's mom was driving me home in their SUV. My friend sat behind the passenger seat and I sat in the middle, uncomfortable seat. Her mom took a back road that was fairly dark but quiet and residential in Lutz, Florida. Suddenly, something came running out across the road left to right. The headlights illuminated the thing. Her mom swerved and because I was in the middle seat, I had a clear view of the road. It happened very suddenly, but her mom was so rattled she pulled over at the next subdivision. Turning back to me, she said, Did you see that? Both our mouths were hanging open. My friend didn't see it because her view was blocked by the seat. What we both saw was roughly three feet tall, walked on two legs, had human Caucasian-colored feet that were mostly covered in thick brown hair. It moved quickly, but in a stubby gait. It was almost like a gorilla and a hobbit mixed together. I didn't get a clear view of its face, but from its reaction being caught in the headlights of a car, it was obviously startled. It ran out of the woods on one side of the road into the woods on the other side. Weeks later, her mom took me aside and we discussed what we saw because she was so taken aback by what happened. I have no explanation for what that thing was. That is by R. The next one, most likely a skunk ape. I was 10 years old and visiting my paternal grandparents in Delaware near the Pennsylvania line, not too far from where I am, with the rest of my family. They lived deep in the woods and I always hated it there. It felt like something was always watching and was always eerily quiet, like not even crickets chirping. I, I, I can comment on this because... Depending where they are, most likely they are back in the White Clay Creek region. And I have hiked back there many a time and have experienced this. There's just sections that are constantly nothing, not a peep, not a bird, not a squirrel, not, nothing. You just, you hear nothing but the trees moving. My little brother and I shared a bed in one room on the ground floor. My brother would sleep at one end, his head against a window or wall, and I would be on the other facing the window. On this particular morning, I woke up first. The sun was brilliant, making the room gold through the curtains, and there a silhouette against the window was a deer with the biggest rack of antlers I have ever seen. It was right there, like almost pressed against the window in profile. I stared in awe. And that's when it changed, in one smooth movement. It reared up on its hind legs and was no longer a deer, but a man. There were only two men in the area, my grandfather and my dad, and it was clearly neither. 
Not sure if that made it better or worse. Grandfather was very built for his age. Dad had a gut. This silhouette was clearly younger, muscular, but not in the like a brick way my grandfather was. It exuded strength and scared the hell out of me. It stared to the side for a moment, then strode off with purpose. I don't know what I saw. I, I want to believe it was just the groggy mind of a half-awake kid. But I remember the fear slicing into me. I remember the feeling of something being out there. And that is by K.L., again on Phantoms and Monsters. All right, let's see what else we got around here. Let's go over to live science. Bizarre worm tornado in New Jersey has scientists baffled. Heavy rains precede the worm's appearance. Spring rains often bring scores of earthworms to the surface, but where they normally just writhe on top of soil and sidewalks. But recently, heavy rainfall in a town near New York City was followed by something a little more unusual: a wormnado. A resident of Hoboken, New Jersey, was out for a morning walk in a park near the Hudson River on March 25th when she spotted hundreds of worms spreading along the walkway. The woman, who asked not to be identified, told Live Science that after her initial surprise, she noticed something even more bizarre. A number of the worms had formed a cyclone-like shape, creating a spiral where the edge of the grass met the concrete. The woman took photographs and sent them to Tiffany Fisher, a member of the Hoboken City Council, who shared the image of the tornado of worms on Facebook. Clearly, worms come out after it rains, but this is something I've never seen, Fisher wrote. When the photographer saw the worm tornado, they weren't actively spiraling, although individual worms still wiggled in place. She told Live Science there were no open pipes nearby, and though most of the worms were spread out in a big swirl, there were plenty of worms extending beyond the outer curve of the wormnado. They clung to the wall of a nearby building and dribbled down the curb and onto the road, the woman said. While it's tempting to imagine that the worms were aligning themselves in a swirl in preparation for the worm moon, the supermoon that illuminated the night sky just days later on March 28th, it's unlikely that the spiral was a lunar ceremony. So what was the weird worm nato all about? Worms breathe through their skin. So when heavy or persistent rain saturates the soil with water, the worms must tunnel to the surface or risk drowning, according to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Earthworms are typically solitary, but they sometimes form herds when they're on the surface. The worms collect in groups and communicate with each other about where to move, researchers reported in 2010 in the International Journal of Behavioral Biology. The scientists in that study found that earthworms in the species Isenia fertita would form clusters and influence each other to select a common direction during their migration. And they did so using touch rather than chemical signals. The collective behavior would help earthworms survive environmental threats such as flooding or arid soil, and it could also be a defense strategy against predators or pathogens, according to the study. One exceptional example of earthworms herding was captured in, on video in 2015 by rangers at Eisenhower State Park in Denison, Texas. In the footage posted by the Texas Parks and Wildlife YouTube channel, several enormous masses of pink earthworms wriggle on, wiggle on the road. 
Uh, recent flooding may have brought out this herding behavior, park representatives wrote in a video description. And the video is on here, so definitely go and check that out. I'll have uh, all these links in the show notes. But the cause of the Hoboken worm NATO is less clear. This tornado shape is really interesting, said Kyung So Yu, a professor at the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate at the University of Minnesota. Yu studies how invasive earthworms transform forest ecosystems. And though worms are known for mass emerging from soil after rain, he had never seen them form a spiral before. You told Live Science in an email, <clears throat> Aquatic worms, such as the California black worms, Lubriculus veritgatus, can form an enormous living knot known as a blob. As of many as 50,000 worms, when they're threatened by dry conditions, according to worm blobs, a comet created by the Bamla Rab at Georgia Institute of Technology School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering, and illustrated by artist Lindsay Lee, a tightly packed blob of worms is less likely to dry out than one worm on its own, and the worms pull and push to move the blob around. Bamla Lab researchers wrote in the comic. Lab leader Sayad Bamla an assistant professor at Georgia Tech, suggested an email that sudden changes in the soil's water in combination with the shape of the landscape could explain the appearance of the spiraling worm NATO. The ground there could be dipped, Bamla told Live Science in an email. If the water drained that way after flooding, the worms would be following a water gradient. It's difficult to tell the worm species from the photos, but Bamla said his colleagues have observed what type of behavior in the aquatic blackworms they study, which form massive blobs. I've been a massive blob. Came out of quarantine, I felt like a massive blob. Still kind of feel like a massive blob. We've seen them follow trails of water, form all kinds of paths and aggregate structures, Bamla said. These ag aggregations occur once water leaves. However, as it's unknown what type of worms made the spiral, any conclusions about their behavior would be speculation, he added. Local weather reports described heavy rainfall the night before the photo was taken, about 1 inch or 2.5 centimeters in all. That would have resulted in a lot of earthworms coming out of the soil for air, Harry Toison, a doctor... Doctor, a doctoral candidate in Georgia Tech's interdisciplinary bioengineering graduate program told Live Science in an email, dun, dun, dun. I think the circular pattern is much more indicative of water draining and the worms being swept rather than a type of behavioral locomotion. Perhaps a sinkhole is forming. It would be interesting if a bunch of earthworms provided telltale signs of a forming sinkhole. In any case... Whatever may have caused the Hoboken worm NATO didn't last. When the woman who photographed it returned to the park a few hours later, the swirl had disappeared. There were still plenty of worms all over the walls, curb, sidewalk, and road, but the bulk of it was gone. And I'm not sure where they went, she said. So, worm NATOs. So I'm not sure if any of you guys have, uh, have seen this article. This is also out of Live Science. And it's about the swirlion. Swirlin? The swirlin. Swirlin? Meet the swirlin. S-W-I-R-L-O-N. The swirlon. A new kind of matter that bends the laws of physics. Researchers discover a new state of active matter. Fish schools. Insect swarms. 
and birds fly in murmurations. Now, new research finds that on the most basic level, this kind of group behavior forms a new kind of active matter called a swirlonic state. Maybe this actually connects to the worm NATO. Physical laws such as Newton's second law of motion, which states that as a force applies to an object increases, its acceleration increases, and that as the object's mass increases, its acceleration decreases. Apply to passive, non-living matter, ranging from atoms to planets, but much of the matter in the world is active matter and moves under its own self-directed force, said Nikolai Brilliantov, a mathematician at Skolkovo Institute of Science and Technology in Russia and the University of, of uh, Leicester, I think it would be in England, living things as diverse as bacteria, birds, and humans can interact with the forces upon them. There are examples of non-living active matter, too. Non-particles, known as Janus particles, are made up of two sides with different chemical properties. The interactions between the two sides create self-propelled movement. To explore active matter, Brilliantov and his colleagues used a computer to simulate particles that could self-propel. These particles weren't constantly interacting with the environment, consciously interacting with the environment, Brilliantov told Live Science. Rather, they were more akin to simple bacteria or nanoparticles with internal sources of energy but without information processing abilities. The first surprise was that this active matter behaves very differently than positive or passive matter. Different states of passive matter can coexist, Brilliantov said. For example, a glass of liquid water can gradually evaporate into a gaseous state while still leaving liquid water behind. The active matter, by contrast, didn't coexist in different phases. It was either all solid, all liquid, or all gas. The particles also group together as large conglomerates or quasi-particles. Again, very much like this Wormnado article I, about what it's saying is these conglomerates and quasi-particles, i.e. the worms, all coming together, which mill together in a circular pattern, like the tornado, around a central void, kind of like a swirl of schooling sardines. The researchers dubbed these particle conglomerates swirlins and named the new state of matter they formed swirlonic state. In this swirlonic state, the particles displayed bizarre behavior. For example, they, vowed Newton's second, they violated Newton's second law. When, a, when force was applied to them, they did not accelerate. They just moved with a constant velocity, which is absolutely surprising, Brilliantov said. The simulations were basic and experimental work with real-world active matter is an important next step. Brilliantov and his colleagues also plan to do more complex simulations using active matter particles with information processing abilities. These will more closely resemble insects and animals and help to reveal the physical laws governing schooling, swarming, and flocking. Ultimately, the goal is to create self-assembling materials out of active matter. Brilliantov said, which makes it important to understand the phases of the laws of matter. It's quite important that we see the nature of active matter is much richer than that of passive matter, Brilliantov said. This research was detailed in uh, October 2020 in the journal Scientific Reports. All right, so, I mean, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I picked those two articles 
and actually did not read them ahead of time. And uh, kind of neat. They kind of almost go together. Someone needs to contact Brilliantov and send them a bunch of, where was that, Minnesota and random worms? I don't know. But anyway, let's see what else we got in here. Uh, also from Live Science. To be declassified, UFO broke sound barrier with no sonic boom. In a Fox News interview, always a good start, Trump's former intelligence director said the sightings are difficult to explain. More inexplicable sightings of unidentified flying objects will be released for public scrutiny in June, including a UFO that broke the sound barrier without producing a sonic boom. Speaking on Fox News, the former director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, said Saturday that the sightings are difficult to explain. Ratcliffe, who served in the Trump administration, said he hoped to declassify the reports during his tenure, but that they will be released by the Pentagon by June 1st. It's not the first time the military had released strange reports, or even videos of UFOs, known in military parlance as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAPs. In April 2020, the U.S. Navy released three videos, which uh, the link to those is in here if you haven't seen them. You can check them out, make sure your sound's on so you can listen to the pilots. Appearing to show aircraft flying faster than the speed of sound, and Senate intelligence reports reveal that the Pentagon is still on the hunt for UFOs or UAPs. Also a cool link to check out. But check your excitement, Fox Mulder. Oh, God. I, doesn't that drive you nuts? I mean, a, anything in, an, in a normal news broadcast, especially local. In other news, and then they'll go right into the, into the X-Files uh, intro music. And do it like something straight out of the X-Files. Ah, that's so irritating to me. But anyway, the military is generally more concerned about whether UAPs might be secret aircraft or weapons developed by other nations than it is about finding evidence of ET in our midst. So they say. According to Newsweek, Ratcliffe said the upcoming Pentagon report will include more sightings and reports of objects moving in seemingly impossible ways or breaking the speed of sound, without any accompanying sonic boom. The unexplained sightings occur all over the world, he said, and included events picked up on automated sensors and not just by human eyes. There are instances where we don't have good explanations for some of the things that we've seen, Ratcliffe told Fox News. The report and declassification is required under the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2021. However, the sightings may not even represent advanced Earth technology. Debunkers have suggested that the apparent extreme speed of the aircraft in the videos released in April 2020 could be an optical illusion called parallax. This effect occurs when an object close to a camera lens appears to be moving, sometimes quite quickly. As the camera moves, just because it's closer to the lens than objects in the background, a video example is uh, available right here. You can click on the link to see what they're talking about. Thus, the object in the video could be as mundane as passenger planes or weather balloons. Some of the sudden move. <laughs> Did they really go straight to weather balloons? My God, there's got to be a, a memo somewhere in the government or in the military that's just like, I, uh, anything happens, blame it on a fucking weather balloon. God, something else that irks me. I can't believe they went back to what could be a weather balloon. Some of the sudden movements in the videos may be artifacts of the camera zooming or sharpening. 
So go in, take a look. All the links are there in the article, and the article will be in the show notes. And uh, see what you think. If you have an opinion on it, man, leave a message, man. Just leave a comment. Leave it on there. I want to hear what you think. I want to get your ideas and you know, and your uh, what kind of impact it had on you. What what is it making you think? All right. Before we get in the next one, who wants to go for a trip? Who wants to go for an adventure? Let's get out of town. Let's go somewhere exotic. Let's go to Philadelphia. You're wandering your town and turn into an alley you have never noticed before. The sights and sounds of an ancient marketplace surround you. You have found the Market Bazaaro. Alright, welcome back. We haven't done one of these in a while, so I kind of had an itch for some travel. Been staying at home too much. So like I said, we are off in exotic Philadelphia. For this one, America's first doomsday cult, Hideaway. So if you're on the Facebook group, and I highly recommend if you are on Facebook, I'm not sure, some of you, I know uh, you would have to get on the, um, the U.S. or American Facebook, and that's probably a pain in the ass, so I get it. But if you're, if you're in the States or Canada or surrounding area or wherever, and uh, just look us up, Bizarro Aficionado Podcast. We have a big active page on there. And every once I'll publish some video content, which I'm still kind of brushing up on and getting used to before I actually move over and actually have a, uh, a YouTube page. But uh, this is maybe an hour from me. But uh, again, America's first doomsday cold hideaway. Tucked away in a remote section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is the former meeting place of America's very first doomsday cult. Named after the group's leader, Johannes Kelpius, this 40-square-foot tabernacle is built on the side of a hill above the Wissahickon Creek. Thought to be possibly an old spring house, legend has it that this stone-framed hideaway was once a safe place for 40 monks as they awaited the end of days and the second coming. In 1694, a group of German mystics and monks, dubbed the Society of the Women in the Wilderness, settled along the Wissahickon Creek in the Fairmount Park section of the newly founded Philadelphia. Their society was named after a woman in the Book of Revelations who sought refuge in the wilderness during the apocalypse. The monks chose the location of their cave not only for easy access to clean spring water, but because of its position on the 40th parallel. The group also created a 40-square-foot tabernacle, including an observatory where the monks practiced astronomy. It's believed to be the first observatory of the New World. Numerology was a sacred practice to the monks, and the number 40 held a special significance. The hermits of the Wissahickon were led by the cave's namesake, 26-year-old Johannes Kelpius. The Transylvanian mystic and scholar was born in the same village as Vlad the Impaler and earned an M.A. in theology from the University of Altdorf. Like many of the others in the group, Kelpius's expertise was in medicine and music composition. During his time at Altdorf, Kelpius was introduced to the Pietist uh, religious movement. Pietism is a movement within Lutheranism that emphasizes personal holiness and devotion over mere compliance to church rituals. Kelpius soon joined a small group of young men called the Chapter of Perfection, formed by German pious Johannes Jakob Zimmermann. 
The first group believed they were on the brink of a new spiritual age and had prepared for Christ's return. Now, for those of you who have ever done any Freemason research, chapters and, in, in particular, perfection or lodge of perfection, things like that, all have high significance. In 1692, the chapter of perfection was anonymously offered a free plot of land and free passage to Pennsylvania. Kelpius believed this to be an ideal opportunity as the 17th century Pennsylvania had a reputation for religious tolerance, and many Quakers, Pietists, Communitarians, and free-thinking groups had sought refuge there. Passing the torch to Kelpius. Shortly before the group was set to depart for America, Zimmerman died and appointed Kelpius as the chapter of perfection's new spiritual leader. Kelpius was determined to complete his mentor mission of awaiting Christ's return. It is said that Kelpius and the rest of the group remained in the forest, even after the anticipated end of the world had come and gone, creating music and art, studying the skies, and medicinally helping those in the local community. In fact, it wasn't until 1708 that the monks disbanded following Kelpius's death. Some of the members stayed in Philadelphia and eventually became lawyers and doctors. Three centuries have returned the site to the unruly wilderness that the monks saw when they first arrived today. Or first arrived. Today, the meeting place for Kelpius's monks is nothing more than a lone cave on a hill. A large granite monolith was placed outside of its entrance by the Rosicrucians in 1961. And these are, there's a lot of Rosicrucians, if you're not aware. So this was actually Amwork, and that's a Los Angeles-based Rosicrucian group, pretty large one. Uh, the worldwide mystical brotherhood claiming roots in ancient Egypt and considering Kelpius the original American Rosicrucian. So if you're in the area, or even if you're just looking for a trip out there, it's in Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. Um, it is a man-made cave, and it looked a lot different in Kelpius's time. Uh, there was some vandalism uh, many years ago that caused them to have to remove the fireplace. So it had a fireplace. Now what they don't go into on here, which is a shame, is that when the doomsday didn't happen, which it didn't, in case you haven't noticed, uh, I, things really just started to decline for the uh, the chapter. And uh, Kelpius eventually became sick, uh, probably tuberculosis or something of that sort. And while he was ill, he asked one of his closest companions there if they would take this box, take it out to the Wissahickon Creek, and throw it in the water. So he gave the box, and the gentleman took it out there. And before he threw it in the water, he's like, oh, maybe he's just not in his right mind. Maybe I should keep this. This could be really important. So he hid it and went back to Kelpius. So he gets back to Kelpius, and Kelpius just looks right at him and is like, you did not do what I asked you to do. So completely terrified that Kelpius knew what he couldn't see, he went back, got the box, threw it in the water, and immediately as the box hit the water, as per the legend, a large explosion took place. So supposedly, the legend is that Kelpius actually escaped Europe with the Philosopher's Stone. And it was that Philosopher's Stone that was thrown in the water. 
All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a little bit of a break, have a stretch, grab another drink, pack another bowl, whatever you do, and uh, we'll be back uh, after this brief musical interlude. Welcome back, everybody. Always good just to have a little bit of a break, break up the uh, just sitting part of it. But uh, all right, this is uh, this is coming out of Yahoo News, and it's a it's a gift of chocolate from Queen Victoria, intact after 121 years. Mmm, old ass chocolate. So this is a uh, London 121 year old chocolate bar from a batch commissioned by Queen Victoria for British troops fighting in South Africa has been found in its original tin in the attic of an English manor. The chocolate belonged to an English aristocrat who fought in the Second Boer War, Sir Henry Edward Pastern Bedingfield, and was found in his helmet case at his family's ancestral home, 500-year-old Oxborough Hall in Norfolk, eastern England. Although you wouldn't want it as your Easter treat, it is still complete and remarkable find, says Anna Forrest, cultural heritage curator at the National Trust, I, uh, the National Trust is a heritage charity that manages Oxborough Hall. So the, the tin lid had a message in Victoria's handwriting that says, I wish you a happy new year, and the inscription South Africa 1900, as well as a portrait of the Queen. So the National Trust said it believed Henry had kept the helmet and the chocolate together as mementos of his participation in the war. The items were discovered among the belongings of his daughter Frances Greethead, following her death, aged 100 in 2020. The Second Boer War, from 1899 to 1902, pitted British troops against the forces of two independent South African states run by the Boers, Afrikaans-speaking farmers, and where huge gold and diamond deposits had been found. Victoria commissioned 100,000 half-pound, or 226-gram, bars to raise morale among the troops there. Thanks for the chocolate, lady. Britain's three main chocolate manufacturers at the time, Cadbury, Fry, and Rowentree, were run by Quakers, who opposed the war, so they refused to accept payment for the order and packaged the chocolate in unbranded tins. However, the Queen insisted the British soldiers should know that their treats had come from home, and the manufacturers relented and branded some of the chocolates, though not all of the tins. While some tins survived, the National Trust said it is extremely rare to trace one to its original owner, and rarer still to find the chocolate as most recipients ate theirs. So that's a little fun thing that they found out of England. And uh, I don't know if... There was a show on for a little bit with these guys, and they would uh, 
they'd find like antique food and try eating it. Not for me. Not going to judge, but not for me. I don't want that. So let's hop on over to hypebeast.com. And this one's fascinating. Uh, Lost Tapes of the 27 Club uses AI to create quote-unquote new songs from Nirvana, Amy Winehouse, and more. The initiative aims to promote mental health support in the music industry. Well, that'll ruin the music. Lost Tapes of the 27 Club, a mental health initiative launched by organization Over the Bridge, has utilized artificial intelligence to compose new songs from the likes of Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, and Jimi Hendrix members of the infamous 27 Club. According to the initiative's website, the project, I'm sorry, the project was created using an AI algorithm that listens to isolated hooks, rhythms, melodies, and lyrics of the musicians. It went on to write new hooks, rhythms, melodies, and lyrics from the information it learned from the musicians' styles, then an audio engineer put together to compose lost tapes of the 27 Club. To show the world what's been lost to this mental health crisis, we've used artificial intelligence to create the album the 27 Club never had the chance to. Over the Bridge wrote, Through this album, we're encouraged more music industry insiders to get the mental health support they need so they can continue making the music we all love for years to come. Because even AI will never replace the real thing. For those unaware, the 27 Club is a cultural phenomenon that has grouped together all the famous individuals who died at the age of 27 due to either drug and alcohol-related or violent incidents. Some of the most notable names were Cobain, Winehouse, Hendrix, Jim Morrison of the Doors, Jean-Michael Besquat, and Janis Joplin. So you can actually stream that if you have a Spotify account, and there's also a link at least to the... Uh, the new Kurt Cobain song, which is it's kind of good. You can definitely hear the Nirvana-ness-ish to it. Uh, they also did a Beatles one a while back, and that one was okay. But uh, this, again, will be in the show notes, so you can definitely check that out. In more pressing news, mysterious New York City squirrel attacks rise in Queens neighborhood. Rego Park residents say they have been experiencing increased squirrel attacks since Thanksgiving. Multiple attacks have been reported in Rego Park, according to local news affiliate Fox 5 New York. The Singh family from Rego Park told Fox 5 that their neighborhood has experienced around 20 unprovoked squirrel attacks since Thanksgiving. They have been randomly attacking people, attacking from anywhere, from jumping onto them to scratching and biting aggressively, Venati Singh explained on Wednesday. We don't know why it's happening. Other Rego Park residents have been attacked so severely that they've been left bloodied by the aggravated rodents, according to recent photos and videos shared by social media users. Michael Frederick, 56, told the New York Post she was attacked by a squirrel in late December. The squirrel didn't care. It just wanted something. It wanted blood, she said. For a few days afterwards, I would come out with a shovel just in case looking around. It's not clear why squirrels in this particular New York City neighborhood are attacking. Squirrels and many other small rodents are rarely found to be infected with rabies, said New York City Health Departments. If New Yorkers believe they have observed an animal infected with rabies, they should report it to 311. 
Any residents who has been bitten should contact their doctor and report it to the department's animal bite unit. Records on New York City Health do not show any positive cases of rabies among squirrels in 2020, nor have there been any confirmed infections recorded in the last 10 years. The New York City Health Department received a complaint about an aggressive squirrel in Rego Park and advised the property owner to hire a New York State licensed trapper. Really, to have a thing? It's like the rat man in like the Middle Ages. I had no idea that was a thing. Well, I guess they do. I guess you just call. Who the hell do you call? I don't know. Squirrel busters. It's got to be squirrel busters. A spokesperson from the health agency told Fox News via email, We are actively working with residents to get more information about the bite events and coordinating with the trapper. New York City is home to the Eastern Gray Squirrel, according to Wildlife NYC, a city government-supported education campaign. The breed is said to be able to reach speeds up to 15 miles per hour and leap upwards of 8 feet. Wildlife NYC advises people to refrain from feeding squirrels, keep distant from them when they are in view, and to seal up homes to avoid nesting infestations. So, there's that. Massively angry, attacking squirrels. Well, we've all been massively angry lately, so why shouldn't the squirrels, I guess? Who knows? Always just... Is it me or is life just getting weirder and weirder? I don't know. So let's go over to Anomalion.com. They say that new theories suggest that we travel to parallel universes when we dream. We have long been fascinated by the concept of dreaming and what they may reveal. With many different theories ranging from psychic glimpses into our future to a glimpse at our innermost thought and desires, scientists are more interested than ever in understanding this phenomenon. Every night, humans have an average of 6 to 10 dreams. A few minutes after being awoken, these dreams are usually forgotten. However, what if there's actual meaning to dreams that would make them more lucrative to remember? Have you ever experienced a dream that was so real and lifelike that you felt like you were literally there in the moment? You can feel the breeze on your face, smell the fresh-cut grass, or taste the food that touched your lips. These realistic dreams feel like much more than just a creation of our imagination. A new science-based theory might actually reveal this to be true. Modern science, as well as Native American tribes and Mexican nations, believe that we, or at least our brains, visit a parallel universe when we dream. This would explain why humans can dream in color and can sense with all five feelings what's happening within the dream. It all starts with the existence of the multiverse, the idea that our universe isn't the only one out there. In fact, it is just one of many. Within each of these universes is a new reality, one that while similar to our own is altered in some way by the decisions that we've made. This is a concept that scientists have entertained and explored for many years. However, a controversial 2010 study revealed evidence that there may actually be other universes in existence. Consider the last major decision you made in your life. Maybe you moved to a new town for your dream job. In a parallel universe, another version of you may exist that chose instead to stay in your hometown and pass on the job. This one change in your narrative then creates a ripple effect, changing every area of your life from that moment on. If you have ever dreamt of your life but it appeared a little different, Maybe you were living in a different house or in a different town. You were working a different job or you found yourself involved with a different partner. 
What you may actually be experiencing at that moment is a glimpse at your life in a parallel universe. The dream itself feels so real as if you're actually standing there because it, in, in fact, is real. Just in an alternate world. Oh, the geese are up. Can you hear them out there? Little awful creatures. This is the life that the, al that the alternate you has created. People often have a reoccurring dream about a place they never visited or even heard of. Perhaps such dreams are glimpses from what one experienced in a parallel universe. Sometimes people dream about events that have not yet happened but will take place in the future. Such dreams could also be incoming images from an alternate world where you are living a different life. Who knows? Perhaps some of the most special dreams are a window into a parallel universe. This is, of course, pure speculation, but without speculation and scientific curiosity, we'll never be able to learn more about the secrets of the universe and our reality. All right, let's, uh, let's get a little weirder. Not that that wasn't weird, but we can do weirder. This bizarro. We can get more bizarro. Microsoft. Microsoft patented a chatbot that would let you talk to dead people. It was too disturbing for production. So out of New York, and this is off of uh, CNN Business, the internet is buzzing over a new technology created by Microsoft developers that could make it possible to have a virtual conversation with a deceased loved one. Well, kind of. A patent granted to Microsoft last month details a method for creating a conversational chatbot modeled after a specific person. A past or present entity, such as a friend, a relative, an acquaintance, a celebrity, a fictional character, a fictional character, a historical figure. According to the filing with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the technology is reminiscent of a fictional app by the dystopian TV series Black Mirror that allowed a character to continue chatting with her boyfriend after he dies in an accident by pulling information from his social media. Want to talk music with David Bowie or get some words of wisdom from your late grandmother? This tool would theoretically make that possible, but don't get too excited. Or freaked out for that matter. The company isn't planning to turn the technology into an actual product. Tim O'Brien, Microsoft's general manager of AI programs, said in a tweet on Friday that he confirmed that there's no plan for this. In a separate tweet, he also echoed the sentiment of other internet users commenting on the technology saying, yes, it's disturbing. Well, no shit. Here's how the technology would work if it were, in fact, built into a product. According to the patent information, the tool would, put, would call social data, such as images, social media posts, messages, voice data, and written letters from the chosen individual. That data would be used to train a chatbot to converse and interact in the personality of the specific person. It could also rely on outside data sources, in case the user asked a question of the bot that couldn't be answered based on the person's social data. Conversing in the personality of a specific person could include determining and or using conversational attributes of the specific person, such as style, diction, tone, voice, intent, sentence dialogue strength and complexity, topic and consistency, as well as using behavioral attributes such as interests and opinions and demographic information such as age, gender, and profession, the patent states. In some cases, the tool would even be used to apply voice and facial recognition algorithms to recordings, images, and videos to create a voice and 2 or 3D model of the person to enhance the chatbot. 
While Microsoft doesn't have plans to create a product from the technology, the patent does indicate that the possibilities for artificial intelligence have moved beyond creating fake people to creating virtual models of real people. What could go wrong? The application for the Microsoft patent was filed on April 2017, which O'Brien said on Twitter predates the AI ethics reviews we do today. These days, the company has an Office of Responsible AI and an AI Ethics and Effects and Engineering and Research Committee, which help oversee its inventions. I, that is really disturbing. Right, that bothers me. I, you can really kind of lump this in with that, that theory that all of this, our lives, outside, nature, everything is just this computer simulation. Because I don't know if you've seen, and I'll, if I remember, I'll put it in the show notes, but there is this uh, this website you go to, and it generates pictures of people that don't exist. And it, it's well worth looking at, if nothing else, for the glitches, because when it glitches, it is super creepy. But, yeah, man, now they can just take your personality and make up a whole nother person and put your personality into it. What is ours anymore? People can clone everything and take everything. And I don't know. That's uh, that's a little much for me. So I don't know. Take a look at it. It'll be in the show notes and uh, let us know what you think, you know, post a comment and let us know what you think. So uh, let's, uh, let's do another one here. This one is about Dung Jin the makers of South African elephant dung gin. Because who hasn't just been waiting for that to happen? A few months back, we brought you the story of the Swedish Disgusting Food Museum and their exhibition of revolting alcohols. Among those drinks was a delightful Korean wine made out of rice and human feces. What the fuck's wrong with people? But if people poop, does not quite you know, suit your delicate palate, you're in luck. You now have an alternative, although this drink probably would have, should have been featured in the same museum exhibit. Allow us to present to you Indalvo Gin, produced by the South African company Ibhu. The drink is still produced from a bunch of crap, but at least it didn't come from human beings. Oh no, the poop in question was excreted by a much larger animal. In fact, the largest of all living land mammals, the African elephant. Granted, Inlavu is not exactly a new product. It has been on the market since November of 2019 and is available in many African countries and some places in Europe. According to Ibu's website, Inlavu is the only gin designed by the African elephant from Forged Botanicals. The company says that the drink uncovers the true taste of Africa in every glass. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't think I want poop-a-hall. Do you want poop? I don't want poop-a-hall. As far as exotic drinks goes, we're ready to rank Indlavu Gin pretty high on the list. But how on earth did someone come up with an idea to make gin out of elephant dung? Like so many other strange ideas, Indlavu was born with one question. Could it be done? Oh man, just, just because it can doesn't mean it should. 
And like with so many other strange ideas, perhaps that question should have been, right, should it be done? No. No one wants to drink poop. What the fuck's wrong with people? Well, at least according to the drinks inventors, Paula and Les Ainsley, yeah, it should. The Ainsleys, oh dear, moved from the UK to South Africa after retiring. At that point, the thought of making poop gin had never crossed their minds. It should not ever cross your mind. It all changed when the couple visited an animal reserve. During their visit, a game ranger told them about elephants' particular eating habits. Apparently, the huge creatures are picky eaters, but their digestive system absorbs only roughly half of whatever they eat. The rest of the consumed remains in their dung and comes out the other end. At this point, a perfectly normal idea popped into the head of the gin-loving Les. Hmm, what if I was to allow the elephants to gather only the choicest botanical ingredients and then use their dung to flavor a gin? Man, how bored is this guy? Like we said, a perfectly normal idea. Paula thought so too, because after her husband consulted her, the two decided to give the elephant crap gin a shot. No, Boomer. No. We contacted the Baudelaire Sculpt Game Reserve in Western Cape, and we said, Do you think we could, you could send us some elephant dung? Les told CNN. Again, Perfectly normal request. They said, yeah, sure, no problem. And they mailed us some elephant dung and we started looking at how to prepare it. Perfecting the poop process. Neither Les nor Paula had any experience in distilling alcoholic drinks, but this story just goes to show that anything is possible if you put your mind into it. Even making bullshit elephant shit booze. Come on. After what we assume was a lot of trial and more or less disgusting error, the, the couple perfected their process. It all begins with high-quality artisanal dung, really, excreted in batches by dedicated elephant buttholes. That's what it says, dedicated elephant buttholes. First, the dung goes through a drying and sanitation process. Then the poop is rinsed and dried again, resulting in what Les describes as a perfectly safe and edible product. Finally, the sterilized dung is infused into the gin. That's a fancy way of saying that it's plopped into a batch of booze until the flavors come off. Mmm. After bottling, each bottle of Inlavu is marked with the GPS of coordinates of where the dung used to make it came from and the date when it was collected. You can see that it's winter in Kruger or summer in Baltlerskalp. It's an additional story, Les said. Les is an asshole. I'm sorry. It tastes brown? The manufacturing process sounds all fine and good, but no booze is worth its price if it tastes like, well crap. And the question about Inlavu is, does it? Apparently not. It's got an earthy, grassy type flavor. You think? Depending on where we collect the botanicals or which elephants we collect botanicals from, the gin flavor is going to slightly change, Les explained. Should you taste the gin, you would, you would detect hints of Usual gin flavoring, such as juniper berries and coriander, but you also taste whatever it was that the elephant chose to eat, which would or could include aloe, acacia, or any number of other grasses, fruits, or bark. 
We were very aware that we were making gin from dung. We have to make a good gin. Otherwise, it's only going to be gimmicky, Les said. It's still gimmicky, you dickhead. If you want to test the gin yourself, it retails for around $35 a bottle. I am in the wrong business. That might seem steep, but you'll also be contributing to a good cause. Ibhu donates 15% of the gin's profits to the Africa Foundation to support wildlife conservation at the Pinda Game Reserve. It only makes sense. Without the elephants, the Ainsleys would lose their gin's primary ingredient. And that'd just be a crappy end to one weird drink. Oh, man, the world is weird. Yeah, I don't want any shit booze. Do you want shit booze? Again, I won't judge. Leave a comment and uh, tell us if you would try uh, shit booze. Ooh, what a weird world. All right, everyone, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Let's, uh, let's have a quick break. We'll come back and we'll say our goodbyes and uh, we'll go from there. Hi, Gaz here. Do you enjoy Bizarro Aficionado and would like to help out the show? Now, don't worry. I'm not asking you for a dime. Just leave a comment, subscribe, or follow the show so you get each episode as it's uploaded. Comments really help the show, and subscriptions help it move up in the ranks among the other 4 million shows in the world. So be a gem, and leave a comment, or like, or follow, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Hey, and we're back, and... Uh... Thank you, everyone. Thank you for hanging in there and having patience with me. It's been one hell of a year. I'm sure it has been for you guys, too, wherever you are. And I do see the stats. Uh, so many different countries out there. Thank you so much for listening. Even if you just tuned in as to what the hell is this show, thanks, man. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy the show, like the little blurb said, Go ahead and subscribe. Leave a comment. Even if your comment is, man, your show sucks, at least I know someone listened. So thanks a lot for listening. And uh, we have some big, big shows. Com big, big. Did I just say big, big? I'm so ashamed. Bigly. Ugh. Ooh. We have some really great shows coming up and uh, just getting them all scheduled and put out there. And then we'll uh, get them out to you. But uh, stay tuned. We got some really cool stuff coming up, really cool interviews. And uh, I will see you guys soon. Stay bizarro. Every day, never take a break, still in myself Addicted to the gold, only focused on wealth Still slide to my nine to five Just to buy the time till I'm on the rise Blasting off, I'm not asking off This ain't frat rap, tell the haters fuck off I'm shining, so blinded As a vibe, got no diamonds But boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend all my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand tall and Say fuck it to me, face calling Tell the ride the wave of a 